Hello, welcome to Motherhood Out Loud, a safe place for mothers to talk openly about their experiences without fear of judgment or shame. Our hope is for women to realize that we're not alone in the variety of emotions we feel and that we're able to provide a more loving community for future moms. Let's take take our our power back and and live motherhood out loud. With Carla and Cindy. Hello, welcome back to Motherhood Out Loud. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Teresa. She is a licensed professional counselor in Texas and a licensed clinical professional counselor in Montana. Teresa holds a master's in mental health counseling and postgraduate training in perinatal mental health and trauma therapy. She is passionate about working with mothers and providing support through their season of motherhood. Motherhood can evoke difficult emotions and Teresa provides mothers with a space to learn how to nurture themselves. Her expertise derives from personal experiences and helping women enjoy motherhood more. Personally, Teresa is a mother of a toddler and a wife. Her why for supporting mothers began after she transitioned into motherhood. She is determined to fill the the gap in maternal mental health for women who experience difficulty navigating this major life transition. Hi, Teresa. We're so happy to have you with us. How are you? Hello, I am doing just well today. How about you all? Doing good. I, don't, I, I know you wrote that beautiful intro for us. I don't know if you have anything to add about yourself that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yes, I am a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Texas. Actually, I am from originally from El Paso, Texas. And recently relocated out here to San Antonio. So when I began my mission to support moms, it was originally with the thought of serving the community in El Paso. However, now that I'm out here in San Antonio, I am so glad to be able to extend my services. And really what COVID has done for us this past two years is open up this platform for telehealth. And so not only serving two different communities, but serving Texas as a whole and as a newly licensed uh, clinical provider in Montana to be able to serve mothers out in Montana as well. That's so exciting. Is there a reason why you decided, this is just out of curiosity, why you decided to also get licensed in Montana? Is that, it just seemed like random in my opinion, but I'm sure it wasn't. No, it's not random. So um, I do provide other, I do work as an independent contractor with uh, another company. And so being able to extend my license out to different states. So I actually have my license extended out to Florida. I have had this wonderful opportunity to be able to do that because of COVID. And so it just allows me to be able to work with others that really need this help and these services. What we noticed during COVID was there was so many people in need of mental health services and a lack of providers that were able to provide these. So it's, it's one of the benefits of being able to extend our licenses. Um, So some states are easier to extend and others aren't. So that's why it's that one random in Montana, have it out extended to Florida. There's a couple of other little guidelines in other states that make it just a little bit more difficult to extend, but I do hope to be able to extend my license out just a little further to other states as well. Oh, that's so awesome. And can you explain to us what a licensed professional counselor is? Yeah, absolutely. So a licensed professional counselor or LPC, it's abbreviated 
at the end of my name, is a licensed and qualified professional who promotes and provides mental health services that really focus on behavioral, emotional, and mental issues. And this can be done in various healthcare settings. And so as an LPC, I have been able to work with individuals, with couples, um, with families, and provide groups for counseling. And so what I do as a licensed professional counselor is work with individuals who are struggling with some sort of anxiety, stress, depression, um, struggling from with day-to-day issues that are often just kind of put on the back burner because we don't know that it's an emotional or mental issue that's happening or a behavioral issue. And so um, with my license as a licensed professional counselor, I'm able to practice independently in a clinical professional setting. And so this is where my practice for serving mothers comes in, is being able to serve mothers in an independent setting where they get to just work with, with me. That's awesome. And what initially made you want to become an LPC? So I got my graduate, I'm sorry, I got my bachelor's degree in psychology. And initially, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do with that. Mm -hmm. And right after graduation, I had a job lined up for me in retail. And I worked there for about two years. And I I realized, okay, this probably isn't something that I want to do. But I had always Mm -hmm. known that I wanted to pursue a master's degree. I just didn't know in what Um, and so I actually had a network of people that I was able to reach out to and ask, Hey, what, what are you doing with your degree? And I'm Mm -hmm. a first generation, uh, college graduate. And so really didn't have that to look in, in my family and say, Hey, what should I do with my degree? Like what, what can I pursue? So it really wasn't readily available and using my network, this is where I really branched out and asked those that were in my life that had a, a psych, a psychology degree. What can I do with this? Hmm. And so, um, there's one person that really comes to mind and, um, she really helped me a, a lot through my journey of enrolling into the master's program and guiding me and providing me with that education that I needed. And when she was sharing that with me, she was telling me what she was pursuing in her graduate work. Mm-hmm. And so hearing that, I thought, okay, I could probably do this. I knew I wanted to be in the helping field. And when mm-hmm. I realized, okay, I don't think I can be a doctor because blood grosses me out. (laughs) (laughs) Then I thought, well, maybe I can do this. And so I will say I was a little intimidated at first when I started my graduate program in the master's level for, for counseling, because the first class I had with was ethics. And here Mm. they just pour onto you all the ethical obligations that you hold and the liabilities as a counselor as a mandated reporter and as being that person that's helping someone else and really that liability that comes with it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, 
is this really something yeah. that I want to do? Right. And it was intimidating. I was young at the time. I didn't know like what that would feel like. And, and knowing that people are going to actually trust me to handle their, their deepest, darkest secrets and their, right. their issues. Like, really, is this something I want to do? So I will say I started off rather intimidated by the program at first. But then when I started getting into like the actual core classes of it, this is where I realized this is my calling. I want to do this. That's amazing. I want to help people. Um, And so my role in retail, I was a store manager and I had associates that were teenagers and we'd always have conversations and I recognized that some of my learning from school was manifesting in conversations that I was having and it was slowly impacting them though I didn't know how that technique exactly was gonna be applied in like a clinical setting because I still hadn't had my practicum just yet that's where my my direction started heading towards the LPC and being a mental health provider and so um that's where it started was getting into that graduate program getting those classes, really learning what the types of techniques are, the types of work that mental health providers provide for the community. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor, and then there's also licensed clinical social workers. And while we provide similar work, our school is just a little bit different but we still fall under the same category of mental health providers. And then when you initially went into this work, did you have a specific specialty in mind or were you just going to do like general counseling for all types of problems or how does it usually work? Yeah. In graduate school, they really encourage you to, decide what type of population you want to work with, with adults, with children, with adolescents. Um, They really encourage you to think of what type of setting you want to work in. And to be honest, perinatal mental health was nowhere on my radar. I just knew I'd like to work with trauma. I want to work in trauma. I didn't know what setting or what what capacity that would be in, but that was kind of just where I thought of, this is where I'd like to to start. Um, however, my practicum took me into working in, working with individuals in substance and chemical dependencies. And so that's where my, I first began my practice in counseling. And okay. from there I moved into different settings, working with a, severe mental health, working with the community, with general population, as you named right now. Um, And then the last two years of my work, I provided services for uh, unaccompanied minors. Oh, wow. Being able to extend my work into that direction as well. Wow, it sounds like you've done a little bit of everything um, that you're very well-rounded. What 
I know that since you became a mother, things changed for you. And how did that develop your passion for motherhood and for you to pursue training in perinatal mental health? Yes, I think um, a lot of moms can probably relate to this statement that I'm about to make. But man, did motherhood really take me by the (laughs) just take me away. I was blown away. I had absolutely nothing, no experience. There was no kids in my life. None. Um, I'm the eldest of three. The my son is the first grandchild. And so for me, I was like, completely naive to what motherhood really is. And so I was very when I, when I learned I was pregnant, I was not scared or not anxious. I didn't have that reaction of like, oh my gosh, the pregnancy test reads positive. It was more like, okay, all right, we're doing this. Put down the pregnancy test, went to lay down and said, that explains why I've been feeling so exhausted, why I've been just not myself lately. Took a nap, <laughs> waited for my husband to get home, left the pregnancy test on the counter so he could see he read it and we were both just like okay this is where this is where life is taking us now but throughout my pregnancy i didn't have the best experience i had horrible morning sickness um that lasted which is how i found out that i was pregnant because i was not feeling good at all it was within the first three weeks that I was like, okay, why does it feel like I'm waking up every single day feeling hungover? Why am I feeling so tired? Why am I feeling without an appetite? Why do I have a headache? It just was not making sense. And I felt so dehydrated. And I noted all of these experiences that I was having throughout pregnancy because it it really didn't feel good. It was so uncomfortable. Um, when I got to that part where the nausea just really turned into what it turned into, I remember one day being having to go and relieve myself and just vomit being all over the place and just thinking to myself, like, man, why do women go through this on over and over? Like, this really sucks. Right. I didn't feel good at all. I hated that every day I felt like I was, I couldn't hold down anything. I didn't like that. And so I made note of that. Like, I wonder what this could be like for other women that are in my position. They don't feel good. Because every time that I would say, oh man, I really don't, I was still going to work. And every time I would tell coworkers, there was only one coworker at first that knew and then when it had to really let people know because I was just not able to sit in a meeting and run out um I would get that unsolicited advice of well it's just for right now it's all worth it no worries Mm. like one day you'll forget all about this but really that wasn't helpful to me I was just like uh the next person that says that I'm gonna punch them not that I would really do that, but I thought that because I just felt so bad. And while I get they were trying to be helpful, it wasn't helpful for me because I just really didn't feel good. 
And so for me, this is where I was keeping note of, wow, this is rough. How are other women doing that? Why would they put themselves through this on several times? And also really just keeping track of my body's also changing. I was noticing like as it was changing, there was like these physical things where my lower, my had that really back lower, really bad lower back pain Mm -hmm. that I normally wouldn't have had. And I never experienced pain before like that in my body. I was always um, pre-pregnancy. I was working. I've always worked out. I've always been athletic. And so moving from not being able to work out, even though I really wanted to, but I was just so sick, so exhausted, didn't have any energy. That was also really hard for me too, to learn how to accept my body's changing and I don't have control over that. And so these were just little notes that I was making throughout pregnancy, like, okay, this is rough for me. I'm understanding how this is affecting me. This part that I really have to change about myself, that's hard for me to accept that I have to change, but I know I have to do it with the working out and really slowing down. Um, and so that was; those are just examples of along the pregnancy what I was was noting. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have I didn't experience any of the body image type of thoughts where, oh my gosh, my body's changing and I don't feel pretty. I don't feel comfortable um, that most women experience. However, I did note to myself, like my body is changing. And so I wonder Mm -hmm. what this experience is like for other women. Because I also Mm -hmm. had other friends who were pregnant at the same time. And so um, I had gotten a comment from one friend who was just like, I'm I don't want to get too fat. I don't want to get too big. Mm -hmm. I was really just concerned about putting on that weight or what their body would look like, what their image would look like if as they were growing in, in their pregnancy. And so alongside being able to experience my pregnancy with other friends who were expecting, I was taking note into account what they were experiencing, what I was experiencing, and just really sitting with that and and holding that so this isn't really where I was like okay I want to serve moms it was when I had my son and um so I had a uh it was a last minute planned c-section and he came one week before COVID quarantine happened and Mm. so my thought was, okay, I'm going to have a natural birth. This is the type of birth I want to have. Although I knew things can happen, so I have to be flexible with that. And so I was. But I remember the day that I had to make that decision of, okay, there, uh, I had a healthy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But during my last checkup, um, the doctor recognized that my my belly had grown several inches and I'm remembering correctly it might have been like three or four inches from the from the week before and so he was like uh either you're I need to figure out what's happening either your uh intake of 
water uh, in the sack is too much or you just have a big baby. Either way, I need to know what's happening so we can plan for the, the labor and the birth. And so that day I was ordered to go have a sonogram, had the sonogram. Well, turns out that I was just having a big baby. And so for me, it was like, uh, really? Okay. Uh, take me into the, to the room and they have to explain the pros and cons of labor naturally and then, or vaginally, and then pros and cons of having a C-section. And so I'm in the room by myself. And unfortunately at the time, my husband couldn't be there with me. He had to go work, but he had been there at every appointment. And so for me, I remember how nerve wracking that was for me, how overwhelming my sister was there with me. And so when I had to say, make this decision for my son by myself and sitting there and you have to make this decision. It was like, um, wait a second. Mm-hmm. How can I make a decision of, of, of like what's about to happen? I wasn't prepared for that. And so I really sat with what that felt like for me. Cause it was very, I was really anxious. Um, I was very emotional. The moment that I said, schedule me for a C-section, tears just rolled out of my eyes. And I looked over at my sister and she mm-hmm. said, you made the right decision. You're, you're going to be okay. And so I knew that I had made the right decision, but at the same time, it was also very overwhelming for me because immediately I thought, oh my gosh, now I have to have surgery that wasn't planned for. And so the day of, um, we had actually planned it for a Friday. The doctor had scheduled me to come in and see him two days later, went in to see him. Unfortunately, I couldn't wait until that Friday. I was in labor and I didn't even know it. I was having what they call silent contractions and they were happening every two minutes. And I didn't know that I was already in labor. So he said, you have a decision. You can wait and we can come back tomorrow and you can see how the baby's doing or you can schedule for today. And here I am faced with another big decision. Right. And again, it's it was just like, uh, whoa, these are really big decisions that are just being thrown at me. And mm-hmm. really at that time where there's just a lot of information being thrown at you, it's really hard to make a decision or to feel like you're making the right decision. Mm-hmm. So thankfully that day, my husband was there with me and we decided we're going to do this today. And so that's that's where it started. And we drove off together and we both talked about that. And we said, if we would have waited until Friday, our anxiety would have just kept on building and building and building. And so while I was really conscious about what I was feeling and really aware of how I was feeling, I also wasn't letting him know, yeah, I'm actually really nervous about the C-section. Right. I was keeping that to myself because I didn't want for him to, to know I was worried. And so my C-section was scheduled for six o'clock. I had to be there at three. 
my appointment earlier that morning was like at 9 a.m. So I went home. I was able to take a nap. I took a, I want to say like a two-hour nap. I wasn't able to eat or have any water. So I remember I was starving. We drove to the hospital. And this is where all of that COVID chaos really kicked in. There was They were short-staffed. Um, I got there at three. They're like, you need to be there at three. So we get there at three and we probably weren't helped until about four. Mm -hmm. And then at four o'clock, they're like, okay, we are going to start getting you ready. We're going to start taking your vitals and taking blood samples and whatever else it was that they needed. Um, And so they were doing all of this. And while in, in that time period of that hour that we were waiting, we were really just trying to get answers like, how much longer? Uh, who can we talk to? They were just like, you're going to have to just wait until we can. Uh, little did we know they were short-staffed. Oh, great. And there was 12 babies right. that had already been born that day. Wow. And so I was like sitting here at the hospital, really just trying to control my anxiety sitting there grounding myself. Um, We're having conversation, my husband and I. And I'm knowing, like, I know I need to keep cool. I know I need to keep myself regulated because I don't want for him to freak out. I don't want for him to to feel my, my nervousness because I didn't know what he would be expecting. And so we finally went in to... The I finally was taken into the operating room. Everything happened um, where my the procedure was completed. My son was born. I remember hearing him cry, and this is where like a flooding of emotions came through. And then I was taken back into the recovery room. I met him briefly. They brought him to me to meet him. I want to say it was like maybe a minute that I was able to see him. And we took a quick picture and then he was gone. So my son was born at mm-hmm. 6.01 and I did not get to see or hold my son again until 10.30 at night. And so wow. I was sitting in the recovery room just asking for my son the whole time, wanting for him to to hold him, wanting to see him. And my I, I told my husband, you stay over there with him. Don't leave his side. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Just just stay with him. And everyone had gone to see him. And of course, with COVID, there was just all these precautions like sanit- sanitization and not a lot of people were allowed in the room or um, in, in the viewing area. And so for me, I remember being sad that everyone was able to see my baby, but I wasn't able to see him. Yeah. I wasn't able to hold him. And I just kept asking, where is he? And there was no nurses available. No one was checking on me in that time. It was just family, my sister and my husband that were in there. And every time I was like, can can you please tell him to bring me my son? And they were advocating and they were really trying to get him. And all they would get was, we need to get a room first. We'll take him right now. Or, um... Mm-hmm. right now when we take your wife into the room then she can have him so there was never like a clear answer and 6 p.m also happens to be shift change 
So there was no nurses available. There was no one to find. Everyone was scattered everywhere. Um, and so for me, that that in itself was a traumatic experience, being separated from my son when I was like expecting to be able to hold him, to be able to bond with him immediately after being in that in that room and then also having my unplanned C-section, just the whole feeling of all of it, yeah. no one really giving you answers, no one really being attentive to you if you needed that attention. And and for me, I, I, I remember after leaving the hospital, I was like, man, now I get why a lot of women feel so robbed of their birthing experience. They feel like they don't get to live up to this expectation that they had and, and really have negative views about birth in itself because of the experiences that they have. And while I know that there was a lot of uncontrollables and the world was moving into this global pandemic, did, did I really understand like all the other women that were coming, that were having to have to give birth after me? man, that must have been even rougher. So that's where um, a lot of my thoughts, that's where a lot of these movements in recognizing the ex what the experience of motherhood is really like. And then, of course, comes the sleepless nights, the sleepless, lonely nights, should I add into yeah. that? where you're up so late at night and no one else is. And then when you are up during the day, it's not the same time that everyone else is able to chit chat because they've got their own, they're busy with work and schedules just change. And so for me, giving birth during COVID was wonderful. It was wonderful because I didn't have to set that boundary of make sure you wash your hands. We have a new baby. It was like the real physical boundary of we have to quarantine. Mm -hmm. There's a virus out there. And there was like beauty in that in some sense. But then there was also like, well, no one gets to meet my son. I don't really get to indulge in this season of motherhood where people get to meet me as a mom or People get to extend like their congratulations, and we're in a when we enter motherhood after giving birth, we enter a season of receiving. And what I mean by that is, this is that time to really nurture mom and take care of mom because she's recovering. And so while I did have my mother-in-law there, helping and being there for me, I also didn't know that I could take it slow and just lay back and relax um, and there was so much going on with COVID that of course I did have those worries of oh my gosh what would happen my my son is only days old what would happen like how how are we supposed to do things that we normally would do we're going to be in quarantine and then there was like all that happening with the food being scarce and 
people just really being scared about what was happening with COVID. So um, yeah, that, that also brought a lot of uncertainty and, and a rise of anxiety for me on that level. And then as a mom level, I remember the next day being home and having anxiety and feeling that. And I the, the person I told was my mom. I said, mom, I'm feeling really anxious right now. And I'm feeling anxious because I just got sent home with my son and they didn't give me like a book on, hey, here's the cry specific for what he needs. <laughs> When he needs you to change his pepper or when he's yeah. hungry. Like Where I just got you manual. <laughs> yeah. Like where's my manual on my son? Yes. Why don't we get sent home with that? Like seriously, I, I totally relate to that. It's like you'll learn to know their cries. I'm like, yeah, but I need to know right now what that cry means. Like I want to Google, Google. <laughs> <laughs> why are they crying and it's like 20 different things and I'm like okay great that narrowed nothing <laughs> yeah that's the advice that they give you when you leave the hospital is um yeah you'll learn your baby's cry there's one for when they're tired when they're hungry when they just when they're overstimulated when they need a diaper change but you'll learn that <laughs> and so I'm sitting here thinking like wow, there's just so much that I have to learn and that I have to do. And I knew where my anxiety was coming from. And really just sitting with that and being like, okay, back to time to put my like therapist hat on and therapy myself. Like I need to, I need to sit here and relax myself. I need to sit here and just acknowledge where this anxiety is coming from. And so I did, I did a couple of grounding techniques. I, I did a couple of deep breathing and that really helped me with, with the anxiety. But then you move into like the sleepless nights. And after so many sleepless nights, you just don't feel like you're functioning anymore. You start losing yourself. Right. You start putting everything else before you, what I, and, and typically it's your, your baby, put your baby first. You start just adapting this survival mom mode. That's wake up when you hear the baby wake up. Um, every time that you go to sleep, wondering before you go to sleep, let me check to see if the baby's breathing. Then you make sure that they're okay. And then you get, you're uncertain about, okay, did I wrap the baby right? And so this is like where anxiety is coming up, right? Like these are all signs Mm -hmm. of of that. And so, um, yeah, I got lost up and wrapped up in all of that. And so for me, while I thought that I was just being a mom, catering to my son and really taking care of him. I also didn't realize like how much of myself I was neglecting. Like in kicks in those, oh my gosh, did I brush my teeth today? What was the last time that I showered? You smell like uh, rotten milk from being burped on. Um, Mm -hmm. You 
smell like you just came home from the hospital and there's just so much going on for a new mom when you're recovering. You're having to wear diapers yourself. Uh, You're trying to breastfeed at the same time. You're trying to learn your baby. You and your partner are trying to learn your new roles. And so there's just a lot of things that are really going on that aren't really talked about and aren't shared. All the advice that I got prior to becoming a mom was enjoy your sleep because this is the last time that you're going to sleep. And I heard that so much over the time that I was like, all right, I'm enjoying my sleep. Okay, got it. Um, But no one ever told me like, hey, those 2 a.m. feedings, you're going to be so exhausted and you're going to feel so alone. And it lasts for... A really long time like no one ever said hey right after you're gonna wear a diaper yourself so while you're changing your own diaper you're also gonna be changing your kids diapers and it may not be comfortable for you to be moving around a lot so like you learn how to just stay on the couch or stay in bed you don't have to do that instead it was like me having to navigate these feelings of I do I need to be doing or do I need to rest? So that was also like challenging for me, especially as a person that's always on the go, go, go. I was so used to being busy. Um, and during this time, I also had friends that were reaching out. And this is really when I began to learn more about these the hidden side of what motherhood is. And what I mean by that is so many women experience anxiety right after that they're needing to have medications to help control and and manage this anxiety. And when they get on these medications, it's often prescribed by um, by their PCP or their OBGYN. And so this complicates things for them just a little bit because now their vision of, I want to breastfeed my child or how their bonding experience and in terms of mothering and being able to be there for their child looks a lot different because the medication that they're prescribed is they're not able to breastfeed because of that medication. Um, And so that leads to feelings of not being enough of a mom. Like I wasn't enough of a mom because I couldn't do this or I wasn't able to breastfeed. And, um, And so I started learning of others' experiences and what that was like, Um, learning about how alone they felt, learning about how their introduction to motherhood was scary for them because of their birthing experience, Mm -hmm. how some weren't really as 
thrilled or as excited as they should have been when they held their baby for the first time or held their baby consistently for the two-week period. And so there's a lot of parts of motherhood that aren't really talked about. And it was during that time, that first month, where I had my friends checking in on me, people that that I knew checking in and and sharing their experiences with me that I was taking on noting more of this. And I was just like, man, like there's just so much that we go through. And why isn't this being talked about? Like why, why does social media make it seem like motherhood is beautiful? Because I was expecting to be out there looking fabulous and like matching outfits, <laughs> pushing my bougie um, stroller. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not exactly what it was like for me. Because ain't nothing bougie about wearing um, a diaper <laughs> after you've given birth. And I'm just going to say that out loud and, and out there because, hey, that's something that, that happens after labor. Yeah, I really like what you said right now about the hidden side of motherhood, right? Because I was I was right there with you, Teresa. I thought I was just going to walk out of the hospital and somehow, some way, I was going to know how to be a mom. Like, I don't know, like I was just going to magically walk out and all this knowledge was just going to come to me. And like you say, in social media or seeing other moms, right? And I'm so guilty of this is that I never was a good friend when my mom, when my mom friends were, you know, like they had their baby and I'm like, oh, they don't want to be bothered. I'll catch up with them when the baby's six months. So, I mean, whether we like it or not, I mean, we do learn a lot about our babies, about ourselves in those six months, three months, right? So I never saw my friends struggle. So all I saw was this beautiful side of them kind of getting a hang of it. So that's what this like illusion of what I thought motherhood was going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to lose some sleep. But I wasn't knowing how much. Oh, I'm going to be a little emotional, but it's going to be emotion of happiness of like, oh my God, look at my baby. And it was like, what are you saying? This hidden side of motherhood that I never got to experience because same, oldest, no kids. I was a horrible friend that never followed up. So I saw them when the baby was old and they were kind of like grounding themselves. And then you're bombarded with like, holy cow. And a lot of people don't talk about it because one, there's the shame of like, why don't I know they got it together? And it's like this aspect of like, we we kind of leave it behind. Like we, we kind of hide it. We kind of keep it quiet. We're like, let's not talk about it. Or sometimes we just don't have time. Like straight up was like, I like it feels horrible, but I rather sleep right now than tell somebody that I feel horrible. So be right back. But you know, that that's really sticking with me, the hidden side of motherhood. Like I, I think we can go into like a whole topic of like things we wish we knew or things we like the real, like once you get to touch it and you're like, oh no, that that wasn't it. <laughs> that that wasn't what I was expecting. Or cause I, I feel there's a lot of there's beautiful things, but there's a lot of downsides that we're not aware of. And the advice of like, oh, you know, get as much sleep as you can. I'm like, I can't bank it. Like I can't like sleep 10 hours today to use up another day I, I wish <laughs> I wish I could do that but no like it's it's not helpful but 
Yeah. I just wanted yeah. to like point on that because I was like, it really spoke right now. I'm like, yeah, so true. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And these are all things that are not shared and aren't talked about. So for me, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm just blindsided with this. I'm just blindsided with like the, and then the first two weeks, two to three weeks after labor, there's just this hormonal change going throughout your body. And so before I was never like the type of person to cry a lot or be like emotional, but I now as a mom, I'm very emotional. I am. And what I mean by that is I will feel like any bomb story that I read that may have some type of sentiment attached to it, I will be crying, happy tears, sad tears, like like empathetic tears, like, oh, I feel that, like I feel that in my heart. But that's going back to that blindsided part is we don't, we're not told, okay, expect this after. Expect that when after, when you become a mom, that you may neglect yourself so much that you're going to forget when the last time was that you showered. Expect that it's going to be hard for you to ask for help because shame is going to be in there. And what does that shame look like? It looks like if I ask for help, what are they going to think about me? If I say that I'm struggling, does that make me a bad mom? Does that mean that I cannot care for my child? Will they take away my child? And and then input like, I'm not feeling as happy as I thought I would be now that my child is here. Well, if we just think back into our culture just a little bit, those are often feelings that are not acceptable in the family dynamic. You don't talk about your problems. You don't share that. If in the immediate family, you you can talk about maybe like to your mom or to your siblings, but any conflict in the family, it's like, don't talk about it. You're not allowed to feel sad. You're not allowed to feel angry. You're not allowed to express that. And so in just, and this is talking just about like the, the Hispanic culture, um, that's where a lot of that can really come through is, okay, we're, well, do, if I say that I'm struggling, what will my family say? What is the, echale ganas, ponte las pilas. And it's like, mm-hmm. le estoy echando ganas, but you know, it's not... I know they mean well, but it's like, echale ganas. And it, you know, it's like, you are giving it your all, but what more can I give? And, you know, I can see that a lot, like in the Hispanic culture of, you know, we laugh, me and my brother, because whenever we're not feeling good, we're very open about our feelings. And my dad's like, es que le tienen que echar ganas. <laughs> and I'm like, we are. That's why we're feeling like this. But, you know. And it's just a, a different culture, and we try to honor what our parents say. But I'm like, tengo pilas, but it's still not cutting it. And when you're a mom, and when you're feeling in those emotional feelings, you're just like, 
well, I'm already giving it all and it's still not enough. And then as a mom, se te están descargando las pilas. <laughs> yeah, it's like, who's going to charge them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on some of those other, like, dichos that they that they have mentioned, it's, um, I've also heard, like, in my work with moms, specifically, like, uh, parents offering, like, the, the mom, the new mom advice, like, pues quisiste tener hijos, ¿verdad? Hmm. Hay que aguantar. Esto ya es por toda su vida. <laughs> and yeah. so culture plays a lot into why we don't share or why this isn't talked about. Um, why we don't ask for help. Or why we right. don't show this hidden side of of motherhood and, and really what it's like and and why so many women go into it pushing themselves to have this social media type of pregnancy and birthing experience and motherhood experience. And when they live it for themselves, they're slapped with the reality of, oh, this doesn't look like what I see on social media. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I was going to be up to my eyeballs in laundry and right. that I was going to like that the mess, that the mess in my house was going to make me so overstimulated. Um, and so another thing into that is why we don't talk about what the reality of motherhood too. And in our, especially in our culture is, well, how often do we share something and does the rest of the family start to know? Mm-hmm. And then right. a lot of times women don't want for their personal selves to really be exposed to the whole family because if you tell one person, now one person's going to go and tell this person and now your whole story is shared with everybody. And so that really feeds into that shame because this is where that that criticism starts coming in and um, that can look in what that criticism can look like is pues deja de tener el hijo ay lo tienes bien enracilado put down your son you right. have him so cheap because you're holding him and so I even had that mentality too right before going into right before becoming a mom like Oh yeah, don't hold your 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 baby for a long time because you're going to get him so used to your arms. And I remember when I after I had him I was like, how can I put him down? Like I just want to hold him. Right. And very similar to like other moms, of course, in comes all the reading reading all of these mom articles, mom blogs and and whatnot and research behind that. And so, um, yeah, Google becomes your best friend when you become a mom instead of like really leaning into that help or that support of that family could offer. But it's because sometimes you're unable to do that because it doesn't feel supportive because of comments that you might get back that might guilt you. 
or that make make you feel shame or might make you feel inadequate. And I was going to ask, Teresa, since you treat different, you know, people from different backgrounds and everything, do you notice a lot of this like cultural differences like between Latina moms and like non-Latina moms? Because like, that's all I know, right? Like this is like the bubble that I've been submerged in. But you as a professional that gets to interact with others, do you see some sort of like, you know, you see the same signs with everybody or do you see certain things within the Latino community that, you know, really speaks to this hidden side of motherhood? So my my work in motherhood is so beautiful because I get to experience motherhood through my own experience and then I get to experience motherhood through the eyes of others I get to see the different types of motherhood and I get to see the different sides of of motherhood as well and to be honest there's very 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 much similarities between backgrounds and guilt is there for a lot of moms shame is there for a lot of moms feeling um resentful is there for a lot of moms it just looks different in the sense of how that's being received because between cultures there's there's similarities in the sense of like what we share and we do not share there are similarities Mm -hmm. in the way conflict is handled and that starts from upbringing, right? So we're taught how conflict is handled within our own family dynamic. And then that stays embedded within us until adulthood. And oftentimes that is how we handle conflict ourselves. Um, So it's very similar. A lot of times it's very similar the way how we don't share certain things because of pride or because of maintaining a family image. but then there's other cultures that are very much you share and we're accepting and we're here to help. And so it could still look very different for moms either way in, in different, in different cultures. It's just the way how that conversation is being said or being given uh, as far as what is acceptable within our culture and what is not. But yeah. a lot of times this need to maintain image is similar across across cultures. I well, can see that, right? Mom guilt is like, universal. <laughs> universal. It's a universal language no matter what you speak. Um, <laughs> But, you know, and and that's true because sometimes you think about, like, the image perspective, right? And it looks very different, like, you know, depending what kind of family dynamic you have. But you're always trying to – you have the tia chismosa, right? Like, everybody has a tia chismosa and, like, you have to (laughs) – Right. No matter, no matter how, like, you know, I can say that, like, oh, la tia chismosa, I don't care what she thinks. Like, deep down, you do, even if you're trying to be very tough about it, right? Like – in the back of your mind, you're still like, well, I can't give her a reason to speak 
So I'm not going to bring it up. But, you know, and it's part of like that trauma that people have and you try to be the better person, right? Whether that's with your cousins, your nieces, like you maybe let it go with your tia because it's not going to be fixed. But as much as you care for them, there's still that. And I struggle with this a lot with like even personal relationships with my family is that I love you so much, but I can't stand you. It's like this, like, I love you. I care for you, tia, but gosh, you're so hurtful in certain things, but so caring in others. Like I have these beautiful memories with you, but somehow when I became from a child to a young woman, it changed and the dynamic changed and the judgment started, but I still love you and I still care for you. And so I, I struggle a lot not having a mom to rely on growing up. I really lean into the maternal figures I had left, which were my aunts that I had a beautiful relationship with. And I still do. But it's always like, why are you doing that with your kid? But I'm like the loud niece. I was like, pues que le importa? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, just let, let me be. But it takes a lot of, you really have to have a lot of strong skin for it and have the distance because thankfully like my family is in Arizona so it doesn't matter like if they get mad at me they get over it because they won't see me for a few months and then they forget about it but is that the you know you, you want to please but you want to be tough but there's always the seeking reassurement from the family and yeah you kind of like just kind of turn it back inside and then it's what does that do and then we're looking for people like yourself Teresa like now we want to talk to you we you know, we have we come from a place of wisdom where we've learned more stuff and we're like, maybe family is not the people that are going to help me. Maybe I need to step out and look for a licensed professional that can really give you advice and that can really help you cope through the storm. Honestly, I mean, there's there's some pretty parts of motherhood, but it is a storm when you're trying to kind of like get your bearings and everything. Absolutely. And you just hit on something that's very common in the work that I do with moms, Carla. And that is, we grow up with these people pleasing tendencies. And this is where anxiety comes from is we're grown up to, well, what are we taught? You get good grades, you make me happy. Si juegas bien, te voy a ver los juegos, right? So we're constantly, we were, when we were children, we were brought up with, if you do this, this will be my reaction. And so we're taught to feed that. Our behaviors are to feed other people to get that validation. And when you become a mom and this, your lens from, for parenting changes because now you're looking back and you're seeing like, how was I raised? And then you're having this internal struggle of, well, I love my parents, but I don't agree with certain things that they did in my upbringing. And so that in itself is another place of that, this part of motherhood where now we're coming to new realizations about different things. And now there's two polarities. There's that, I love my parents, but I'm also experiencing some type of disappointment towards them and even saying that out loud can for some people is like oh I can't be disappointed in my parents I'm not allowed to be disappointment and and again that goes back to these well what were those 
values? What were those traditions that you were raised on that may not necessarily align with who you are today? And, and, um, and that's also why it's hard to ask for help sometimes or why it's hard to share. And if it is someone that you can share with and you're sharing everything that happens because there's a lot of difficulties that come up, there can be um, struggles within the relationship with you and your partner. It, and I like to call that um, sometimes it, it turns into like mama bear really coming out fierce when baby's born and it's like, rare. I'm going to protect my baby while dad's trying to also learn. Like we forget that dad's also new, new to this too. And mama bear is just so fierce and is protective. And so while dad's trying to help out, mama bear is like, don't cross this. So then dad starts to withdraw a little bit. And then in mama bear's eyes, what does that look like? Oh, he's not helping or he's <laughs> not trying or he's not try- wanting to bond. And so that can be, that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And it, and again, it's interpretation. It's not that it's what's actually happening, but dad withdraws. Yeah. And so that's how some part of internal uh, conflict for partner starts or it can be well life didn't change for dad he goes on perfectly he sleeps he uh, gets to play video games he gets to work out he gets to do what he likes to do and me I get the sleepless nights I get the feedings I get having to do the doctor's appointments and research all the best pediatricians and how to raise my son and how to feed his cognitive development. And so mom starts overloading and in comes another in, and starts feeding more of that anxiety and in comes another relationship problem that may not necessarily be really an issue, but it leads more into build, uh, building of resentment. And Teresa, what would be your advice in those cases where, you know, mom is, and I think a lot of us could relate to that where we just kind of put up our wall, but we're not realizing it as the mom that we're becoming so abrasive with like, don't come near my cub that we're even doing it to our husbands or partners. And so much so that they become comfortable with like, I don't even want to go near her because if I say something wrong, do something wrong, like she's going to lash out. So they kind of, like you said, retreat and then they become comfortable in that role of like, okay, well, I'm just going to hang out over here until she like yells for me or you know what I mean? And how do you, what's your advice for people in that situation, like for couples that are going through that? Yeah. So a big thing is how are you communicating, right? Um, and what I mean by communicating is if you're wanting for something or needing for something to be done and dad is saying, hey, do you need anything? Is your response to sit back and say, 
no, I don't need anything because there's a thought to mind that, well, he should know. He should get this. I just want for you to take this, that time to sit back and say, well, do I know? <laughs> do, do I know? And what I mean by that is we have these shoulds and I'm doing like gestures of quotes, uh, air quotes with the should around it. Um, and it's because we have these negative thinking patterns and shoulds is one of those where we just expect that people should know. Like we have this expectation, like I should know because I'm a mom now, but do you really know how to change a diaper when you first have to change one? And you <laughs> might have an idea, but you might not know. Do you really know how to breastfeed? Probably not. Do you really know how to give your child a bottle? And so I'm starting off with these simple questions because I want for you to ask yourself that. Did you know? Are all these shoulds that you should have known, did you know? So does your partner really know? Probably not. And so if he's opening up that communication when he says, do you need something from me? What is your response to that? Or... Are you communicating? Are you saying, hey, I don't need help with the dishes right now. What I need help with is the laundry. Or actually what I really need help with is, can you please watch the baby? Because I just want to take an hour nap, please. And so it comes back to that communication of, well, are you communicating your needs? And are you allowing a space for him to be that papa bear too. Because when mama bear is intense, mama bear is intense. And those are self-sabotaging behaviors when we begin to just push, push, and push. When we get the a person who's trying to help us, when we give them too much push, they just, like, like I mentioned earlier, withdraw. And it's not because they want to, it's because, well, Every time I try to do something, she barks or she doesn't allow me. And so my advice would be, what is the space that you're creating for, for your partner to also be involved with you? And are you communicating what you need? And if you're not able to communicate that, then where are these shoulds coming from? These he should know. Because just like we're putting that expectation on ourselves as moms, like we should know how to be moms. Let's be realistic. We don't know. We weren't given that manual. We forgot <laughs> it. It was supposed to become an Amazon Prime. But Teresa, I mean, that is so true what you're saying about how we as moms kind of we expect our partners to know a lot of stuff that we didn't either. Like, I feel like we're mad at ourselves for not knowing and we're mad at them for not knowing. Like we expect them to read the, what to expect when you're having a baby, whatever those books are. Right. Like we, we expect them to learn, but we all have like different, like learning mechanisms, different priorities. And so I hear from, you know, just kind of being more open with people, a lot of that about 
you know, it's because my partner this and building that resentment and feeling, you know, this resentment to our partners or anxiety. I suffer a lot from anxiety, a lot of resentment, which led me to a lot of anger, right? And I was expecting the postpartum depression. I was expecting to feel sad. I was expecting this kind of, I got blindsided by how my emotions were not what I thought they were going to be. And so I was going to ask you, what are some other signs like that, that you feel moms, you know, as you're working with them, what are other signs that they tend to overlook, right? Because I should have felt this, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of these signs that we, that we miss, um, that feeling of resentment towards others in that maybe just in your immediate family dynamic that are those that maybe said, Hey, I'm going to be here to help you and didn't really turn up to help you the way that they did. Um, resentment towards your partner. That is a very common, common, um, issue that I have with working with moms or, or that I've noticed the most. So on top of mom guilt, mom rage, which is part of that resentment, um, loss of identity, yeah, parental burnout, uh, feelings of inadequate as a parent, uh, confronting these, these arising wounds from your upbringing as a child. So a lot of moms have, have come in and very similar to what you mentioned, Carla, is they're coming in with this anxiety. They're coming in with these really high emotional intensity. Oftentimes I meet with women that are in the very desperate, like, please help me. I, I need your help. And they're in crisis. And what I mean by crisis is like, they just don't know what to do anymore. They, they can't, they can't uh, deal with the overwhelming emotions anymore. And they're recognizing that it's causing a lot of chaos within themselves and within their family dynamic. Um, not so much in crisis in the sense of like suicidal or homicidal ideations, but just so much in chaos where it's impairing their ability to concentrate, their, their ability to parent. One of the biggest things that I get is, around this guilt is I can't be present with my child because I'm, I'm, I have so much going on in my head, like, or I'm just feeling like I always have to be doing. Um, so those are just common issues. And the biggest thing that we only know about because it was often talked about is just postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. So everyone is looking for it. Well, yeah, um, I felt like the baby blues, I had that hormonal shift, but really what that is, is the symptoms to look for after, and perinatal care extends from when you begin planning to start a family, and this can include those who are experiencing uh, fertility, issues. This can include those that are thinking about wanting to get pregnant, but have never tried. And I'm doing tried in air quotes as well, um, because I think that there's a better term to use there instead of trying. Um, those who are currently pregnant and up to a year after childbirth, that is what perinatal care is. 
And these symptoms can start before conception, during pregnancy, and can even start after childbirth. And things to look out for is feelings of sadness or depression, feeling more irritable or angry with those around you, uh, having difficulty bonding with your child, feeling anxious and panicky, having these upsetting thoughts that you can't get out of your head, um, feeling like you're really out of control or going crazy. A big thing too to look out for is moments of self where you begin to identify, I don't feel like myself right now. Like I'm really just not feeling like myself. Um, those, those are common symptoms. And then feeling like you should never have become a parent and worrying that you might hurt yourself or your baby. These are all things to look out for that could be a symptom of one of the, what is it? Six, six types of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, also known as PMADS. Um, so there's, on top of just uh, postpartum depression, which is actually known as de depression during pregnancy and postpartum. And then we have anxiety during postpartum and pregnancy. So it's not just everything postpartum. These are all, can all begin before pregnancy and during pregnancy and of course after childbirth. And then we have pregnancy or postpartum OCD. There's also postpartum post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar mood disorders, and postpartum psychosis. And so the nature of perinatal care is sensitive to each of these illnesses. And the training that I have received in perinatal mental health was um, a two-day training of specific perinatal mood and anxiety care. And, um, and then it's six hours of advanced training in trauma therapy. However, my trauma therapy began, my work in trauma therapy began before I even moved into this role of perinatal mental health. And so um, it's specific to being able to work with mothers and the sensitivity of it. So many women are going undiagnosed. Reasons for that is because, well, I've always been anxiety. I've always been an anxious person. There's nothing different now. I've always experienced always having to overfunction in my day-to-day -day life. There's nothing new now. But they're missing like all of these. Well, what are these worries like? You have to include a new baby, sleepless nights, probably not eating right, and also having a whole, a whole life-changing event that's just completely altering. All of those are recipe, is like a good recipe for burnout. It's a good recipe for anxiety. It's a perfect recipe for some type of change in mood. And every parent will experience some type of mood change when they first become parents. 
but 15 to 20% more women will experience significant symptoms of depression. And wow. And only one in seven moms and one in 10 dads will be diagnosed from postpartum depression and suffer from postpartum depression. And so what I mean by only is that not a lot of people are actually coming forward when they're experiencing these symptoms. And when we look at, well, what's the care for mom after childbirth? Mom only sees OBGYN a week after and then at the six-week checkup. And who are they seeing most often is a pediatrician. And so um, pediatricians are actually the ones that should be screening moms. But when we look at the screening, it's like what mom's going to sit there and actually say, yeah, um, I'm not sleeping right and I've been experiencing some type of irritability towards my partner. Not feeling like I'm bonding with my baby. When they're at a doctor's office and they know that, hey, what is this doctor going to look at? Are they going to take my baby away? So there's still a lot of stigma to that with why moms aren't coming forward, why parents in general just aren't coming forward with with their mental health and emotional well-being. And Teresa, I was going to ask you, I mean, there's so many things that are running through my head. I'm trying to like narrow down. Um, well, first, like I would have never documented anything at a pediatrician visit because I was too busy sweating and being very stressed, making sure that my son was not going to lose his mind, that I don't think I could have even focused enough to fill out anything. <laughs> like I would have been like, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Like, get me out of here. Um yeah, but, I agree with you. Yeah, it's very stressful for me. Um, for the clients that you've seen, do you notice them bring up a lot about COVID impacting their parenthood or about social media impacting their parenthood? Oh, absolutely. The social media and COVID, 100%. And man, I, I know what my experience was like for COVID. And that was... I don't think that if we were to have been in a, I'm just going to say normal setting. I don't even know what normal is now, but um, if we would have been pre-pandemic, I believe that I would have engaged a lot more in outings and meeting family. And so how people, how moms were coping now was we were put with this physical, real physical boundary of you can't leave your house. And so that isolated moms a lot more. They were becoming more withdrawn from family and not reaching out. Um, And so what that looked like was now taking on even more at the house, like with having to do everything, but not do everything on like a weekly basis, like wanting to do everything on a daily basis. Like the laundry, the cooking everything from um, making sure all the rooms were clean, making sure every single thing was picked up and organized and, and that they had like this Pinterest worthy home. And it's also, that also kind of links into social media because now they were coping with taking more to social media. Yeah. Increased consumption of social media. I'm sure. 
Absolutely. And here's where social media negatively affects motherhood and our mental health. So I, I, I came to you all and I shared my experience of what motherhood I thought would be like with being so fabulous, hair done, makeup done, nails done, my cool little bougie um, stroller. Well, it wasn't like that. I didn't have social media for uh, for a really long time. I had deleted social media for about, I think it was like four or five years. I recently got back onto social media specifically to start advocating for parental mental health, maternal mental health in specific. And so for me, I was not impacted by social media myself, but I did have this like image of, well, this is what it looks like on social media. Like I had no idea. I was so naive to real what motherhood was like. And then when I, I, I started working with moms and I started learning about how social media has impacted them. Um, this is where that culture of motherhood is so segregated. And what I mean by that is social media begins to create this culture of competition. Mm-hmm. Like who has the best nursery? Who has the best playroom? Where is my kid developmentally? And moms who are scrolling through there mindlessly and seeing like videos of kids progressing, kids in the same age bracket as their own kids, doing all of these other things, accomplishing all of these other things while their child may not be there yet, begins to, a mom begins to internalize that of, well, I'm not doing a good job. It's because I must be doing something wrong. I'm not present. And kicks that mom guilt of, am, am I doing enough? And then you start seeing moms on there that seem to have it all together. They're doing so much. They are opening new businesses. They are chasing after their dreams. Moms who get ready every day. Moms who are going out for self-care and I'm doing air quotes for self-care here, like pedicures, getting their hair done. And then you see that on social media and it's like, wait a second, this realization of why I'm neglecting myself. How does that person have time for that? And that begins to impact mental health. Well, as well. And this is just now seeing feed from people that you may know. Then let's put the feeds of sleep training, how to raise your children, parenting advice. Now we're going to put all these other feeds in there. Now that creates a whole new type of anxiety, a whole new type of stress, whole new type of feeling of inadequacy because now we're now we're seeing like oh my gosh. My child's seven months old and he's not sleep trained yet. According to this person, they should already be sleeping from this time to this time. And now that's creating stress on yourself. And then you start seeing like how you should parent, how you should be doing certain things. And then you recognize like you're trying, you see that and you're trying to do it, but then you recognize like, oh, this is actually really harder than it looks. 
I'm getting more frustrated than I normally am. And again, in comes more stress, in comes more of this negative self-talk of you're not doing it right. You're not capable. You're not doing enough. And so that's just the beginning of what some of that negative self-talk can look like and the pressures that social media puts on. on Teresa, this is um, another question I had is, so say, and I don't know if you see this often, I think especially in like the Latino community, it is pretty prevalent, but say that the, you know, the mother wants to get therapy, um, is struggling, whatever the case may be, or even wants preventative therapy prior to not, you know, navigating parenthood, but her spouse pushes and is like, why do you need therapy? Or kind of gives that like, I'm not going to go. And, you know, even if you think like we should do it together, you know, it'll be beneficial for us in our marriage or partnership and they kind of push back and they're like, I don't believe in therapy. And I think that's a very like Latino man thing. You know what I mean? Um, My dad was like that for all his life until he got depression. And then it suddenly became clear to him that it it is a real problem. And then now he's more sympathetic, but I feel like they don't realize that it's a thing. Like they're just very macho about it. So what would be your advice into like breaking that barrier and kind of, because I always feel like I've talked to Carla about this before in my personal life, like thinking like by the time that my husband wants to do therapy, in my opinion, it's going to be too late. Because by that time, I feel like you push back so much that we kind of like are like, okay, dude, like then our marriage is just going to crumble. And by the time you say, okay, let's go, I'm going to be like, I don't want to do it anymore kind of thing. You know what I mean? So how do you navigate that? Yeah. Okay. So very, uh, it's not just a culture thing. Um, okay. I work with women and couples. Um, and in serving these these people, these population is that there is a lot more resistance when it comes for men, mm-hmm. uh, a lot more resistance. And part of that is when we think of upbringing of, of the gender of males in general, oftentimes our generation and before, being a man is you fall down and you get back up you put your big boy pants on big boys do not cry so mm. when i approach and in my practice when i have a person who is resistant to therapy and is coming because the wife is making that person come or the husband is making the wife come because it can work that way too Sometimes I have, I've gotten clients where it's everyone else is telling me that I need therapy. So I'm here because they say that I need it. Um, And it's not necessarily because they believe that they need it, but because others, their support system have recognized you're, 
you're not you anymore or you really should talk to someone. So when I I have this resistance, um, I work at it. I work with it because even though they may not feel like they need it, there are ways in our lives that these stresses, this anxiety are presenting and manifesting in our day-to-day life. And even if we feel like we don't need the help, even those that we're venting to, and we, we talked about our culture earlier and how we share with the Tia Chismosa or we don't share. But part of that is if you were to share with that person every, all your struggles that you're going through, it's good to have that support, but it can also cause you to like once all of that is done, once they've supported you through that difficult time in your life, afterwards, your response may be to kind of distance yourself because now they know everything about you. Now they know those very vulnerable and very deep sides of your life and experience that you probably didn't share with anybody else, but you shared with that person. And now they're forming opinions and judgment towards you and you'd want to avoid that. And so in a therapeutic setting, this is a safe space, no judgment. This is an environment and a relationship that we establish where you can come as you are. Whether that be that you believe in therapy or not, we'll take it from this conversation today. What brings you here? Some people are saying that you need help. You don't believe that you don't need help that's okay but we'll find we'll find a way to talk about this and so I, I utilize motivational interviewing in that specific type of, of case and oftentimes they come back the next time and they keep coming back and so sometimes what it is is just having that support and having someone to really hold that space for you that is so vulnerable and so deep to be able to really allow you to channel those wounds or to be able to channel where the healing needs to be done for self. And I approach this in a way of understanding the the six stages of change. If a person doesn't believe that they need to change, there's no way that we're going to get them to change. We just have to provide that space for them to to guide themselves through that and and recognize if they feel that they need to change or if there's something that they would like different in their lives. And that's that's where it starts. Is what is what would I like to be different in my life right now? Is what I'm doing really getting me what I want? Or is there a place that I feel is lacking? And so that's how a therapeutic session with a a qualified mental health professional can be much different than just the support of of friends. And I I want for you uh, to add on to this too is, I want for you all to think of how often have you gone to a friend and then you try to share something with them and 
you're saying like, oh my gosh, like this week, I, it's just been really hard. I've been fighting with my partner and I lost my cool. Like I'm just so irritated and frustrated. I yelled at my, my baby and I kicked the dogs out of the house because I can't deal with them anymore. The house is such a mess. And I, I even thought of maybe I should just get a divorce. And you share that with someone. And then that person's just like, yeah, well, you should be grateful that your husband's still there and your baby's healthy. And isn't really lending you the space. They're just like, yeah, you, you really should. You know, that he's a complete jerk. You should really leave him. Can't believe he did that. Right. Yeah. And that that is something that I, you know, I tell people when... I finally, for whoever's keeping up with the stories, I finally found a therapist. And so I've been going for about a month now. And, you know, it's come through realization, even just talking to friends about it, is that sometimes your friends or the people that love you are not going to give you the unbiased opinion that you want, right? Or that you need, that you really need. Not so much that you want it, but that you need. Because there are people that know you, people that love you. And that are hurting for you as well. And sometimes we say this, right? It's like, why do we feel so comfortable to talk to a stranger about our deepest, saddest, craziest thoughts about this? But I don't feel the same comfort um, talking to my sister or talking to my partner. Or, you know, we, we kind of start thinking about this. But the way that I've come to think of it is like, because... I want people to still love my husband. I still want people to still love me afterwards. I still want people to love. These are people that I've nurtured relationships with that I care about that just because I'm feeling anxious or I maybe not being a good mom doesn't mean I'm always going to be like this, but those people are always going to remember that. Right. So we kind of like keep that quiet. And when you go to a third party an unbiased person, like literally a stranger it's so easy to unload because, hey, you may not have to see them again in a year. Like, it's okay. Um, you get to heal without that judgment, without like, yeah, just because my husband may not wake up at 3 a.m. like yours, he's still very great at other things. I don't want you to judge him, but that 30-second reaction of me being angry right now, right? And so we do that a lot where we kind of like, we want to vent, but we want to protect. Like, And is that is you're either giving or taking and you're not healing. You're not moving forward. You're going one step forward, one step back. And at the end of the day, you're the one hurting. So that's why I think like, you know, um, I'm very open about therapy. And I was like, sometimes it's just nice because you just get to tell this person the truth, work through it. And what, you may not have to see them again. Like, you know, in a year from now, you're in a better space and they don't know your spouse. They don't know your family. They don't, you can just be, your honest, vulnerable self and heal from that. Because, you know, sometimes, like I said, it's like they're hurting for you. Your family, your friends are hurting for you too. And this, you should do this. You should be grateful. And it's like, are we fixing or are we venting? And sometimes I tell my friends, like, I just want to vent. Like, don't tell me what to fix. I'm just venting right now. And, you know, it's like, not everything needs to be fixed. Sometimes you just want to talk. I think you just hit that right that nail right on the head because absolutely that is that is the space that you want sometimes we come to our support system our our group those that we really trust 
And they may not have that emotional capacity to carry or to hold that space for you. And so when I was saying back to like, here you are venting about everything that's going wrong, relationship issues that you may have, and you may be met with the, well, you need to be grateful, or you may be met with this advice of like, yeah, you need to leave him or he's being a real jerk. And so while they're trying to be helpful, it's really invalidating to your true experience that you're having right then and there to that struggle that you're having. Because what you're, what you're really saying when you're coming through with that is like, I'm having a really hard time. I am noticing that I'm irritable, that I haven't slept well. Like there's so many factors that go into that. And so when you're receiving these type of responses, it's not making you feel better. It's just making you feel like I knew it or worse, or it's making you feel like, well, that didn't accomplish anything. Still feel the same. And so when it comes to the same thing here with those that come to me uh, and friends, I ask, and this is a great way to be able to support moms is what do you need from me? Do you just need me to listen? Do you just need a shoulder to cry on? Or would you like some advice? And this is opening up that conversation to I'm here for you and I'll be here for you in the way that you want me to be here. Because if I just show up and I start giving advice, then that looks like I'm being judgmental. Then that then that may cause my friend to not want to come to me anymore. Because right. I'm afraid that now you're going to make, you're going to form opinions around my spouse. You're going to form opinions about me. And I don't want for you to have that. So very much like what you just finished saying, Carla, it can be a very slippery slope with, who we are confiding in and why it's so important for moms, especially navigating all of these new things that are being thrown at us. Because even when you think that you've got a stage down, like you've got a routine, you've got it. Like, yes, me and my kid are in sync. Your baby's onto another stage in their development and that throws you off. And here you are again, having to start from the bottom and then, figure it out again. And that too can just continue to play into your emotional well-being. And then when when you're not feeling at 100%, there is absolutely no way that you can show up 100% for your child or for your family. And one thing that I always promote in in my therapeutic setting when working with clients is I am a, in the helping profession, I help people all day. So I wear different hats. I have my therapeutic hat. I have my mom hat. I like to also include some humor and I'll say, I'm the chef. I'm the maid. I'm the meal planner. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the babysitter. And so while I'm wearing all of these hats, if I'm only giving my 100% to one aspect of my life, and the reason why I'm saying one aspect is because not, not everyone is, not every mom works. If a, a mom does work, it may be full-time or it may be part-time. Right now I'm in the, that part-time 
role. And so if I'm only giving 100% to my work, then that means that I'm coming home on empty and my family is getting what's left over. And if I look at my values, I don't want to give my family what's left over. I want to be able to give them my 100% too. And what that means is being able to make sure that my physical health, my emotional health, and my mental health are all taken care of. Because if one of those is off, if I'm not taking care of myself in the way that I am taking care of others, then that's going to impair my functioning at home. And that is, that's the place that I don't want for impairment to be done. Thank you so much, Therese. I think that's so true. We, we focus so much on like physical health, right? Like, oh, eat right, take your vitamins, work out. But the silent part of mental health, it's just mm. as important, if not more so, right? It's kind of like what's holding us together to be able to provide for all these other, you know, roles that we need to fulfill. So I want to thank you so much for, you know, coming with us. I think we all learned a lot from even from ourselves, just listening to this and thinking about what is it that we need. But yeah. any thoughts, Cindy, before I'm like, I think this had to have, this should have been like two interviews. I'm, that's literally what I'm thinking when, I, when, <laughs> I'm, when I'm talking. Cause I'm like, there's so much information. Um, no, I thank you so much, Teresa. I think you gave us a lot to think about, um, you know, and a lot to give to the community too. I think you're a great resource. Where can people reach you? Are you taking new clients right now? Um, give us all that information. Yeah, absolutely. So I am so excited to be able to announce here on your podcast first that yes, I am now accepting new clients and you can reach me at www.teresacurbina.com. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, which is where I'm, where I'm hanging out right now at teresa.c.urbina. And you can follow my Facebook page, which is teresa.c.urbina. And uh, feel free to message me out there. Uh, uh, create this village with me because that's really what my intention was, was to be able to create a village and a community for moms to connect because you're not alone and you don't have to move through any of this on your own. No, thank you. Yes, Teresa, we agree with that statement wholeheartedly. That's why we've created this space too. So I'm so glad that our paths have met together. And yes, follow Teresa on Instagram, on Facebook. She posts a lot of cool, you know, thoughtful um, like quotes to think about, to dwell on. And I really appreciate them when I read them. So I know you guys will enjoy and reach out to her another Latina woman that's giving therapy for mothers out there. So reach out to her if you need any help, um, no matter what stage of motherhood that you're at, or if you're not even a mom yet, but considering it. Um, but thank you so much, Teresa. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was such a blast to be on here with you all.